The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're diving deep into the history and current state of some of the largest and longest-running studies in the world. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Helen Pearson, a science journalist, author, and chief magazine editor for the world's leading science journal, Nature. She has won the 2010 Wistar Institute Science Journalism Award and two Best Feature Awards from the Association of British Science Writers for her writing. Her recent book, The Life Project, The Extraordinary Story of 70,000 Ordinary Lives, was named Best Science Book of the Year by The Observer, was a book of the year for The Economist, and has been long listed for the Orwell Prize. Helen, thanks for joining me. Thanks for asking me to be here. So this book is about something I knew existed but never really thought very much about before, which is the British birth cohort studies. So before we talk about the history and some of what we've learned through these specific cohort studies over the years, can you first talk about what a cohort study is more broadly? Sure. So a cohort study is really a a scientific study which follows a, a group of people that have something in common over a period of time. And these studies are birth cohorts, and a birth cohort is just a group of people who were born at the same time. And and so these studies have followed uh, people for for decades now and collected information on them uh, regularly um, every few years through their lives. Um, So these particular studies, um, there there are five of them. So they've followed five generations um, through their lives. And the the very initial one um, is about 5,000, or it started as around 5,000. Um, some of them go up to about 17,000. And then altogether, uh, which is where partly the title of the book came from, around 70,000 lives. Obviously, there's, there's just over 70,000 of them now. It's really interesting, actually, how this story of, of following people through their lives um, using science is actually a, a story around the technology of being able to do that as well. Um, so at the very beginning, and, and I'm sure you'll ask throughout this around the origins of, of the study because it's a fascinating story, but at the very beginning, they recorded um, the birth of almost every baby that was born in Britain in one week in March 1946. Now, that was about 14,000 babies. Um, but when they came to consider following them up, um, there just wasn't actually the technology at that time to to keep information and process data on that many children. And so they whittled it down to about 5,000 because in those days they were using um, tabulating machines, which are these sort of piano-sized um, clattering machines in order to sort cardboard um, punch cards, which contained the information. And then, of course, as, as we went on, the information that that machine was was doing in you know months can be done on a laptop computer within seconds. So it, it's actually become more feasible uh, to to collect and track way more people and way more information. And I'm assuming people nowadays are a bit easier to track maybe as well, because one of the big challenges with these studies is you're not in constant contact with the people in the study. You do a sweep and then come back after maybe seven, eight, ten years and have to try and figure out where all these people are. That's right. And it was very interesting. Um, These the studies have been very um, British, shall we say, and that it's all uh, that the beginning was all sort of done on a, on a wing and a prayer in some ways and wasn't always um, the best thought out. And it always seemed to be a scramble to kind of keep them going and <laughs> keep them alive. 
Um, but one of the consequences of that was that at the beginning stages of a lot of these studies, um, they, they weren't really thinking actually um, or, or even conceiving that they, they were going to follow people through their lives. It was more just a question of let's collect the information we can now. And then um, and then they would lose track of them. And then they had this huge uh, sort of almost farcical tracing exercise to try and go back, for example, and uh, at one stage with one of the studies, you know, contact all of the schools in across Britain to say, do you have anybody, any children who were born in this particular week so that we can track them down again? And obviously, that's just ridiculously expensive and, and laborious. And now um, now these studies are on a much firmer footing in terms of, of funding and so on. And, um, and of course, all the records are computerized, so it's much more possible to just keep track of people. And, and also, they have this wonderful um, tradition in most of the studies now where they send out birthday cards every year to the uh, to the participants partly to thank you but also just to say hey you know we're still interested in you can you let us know if, you, if you've moved because we still want to be able to stay in touch with you um so as you said yes just part of the challenge is, is keeping people and keeping them interested and involved and keeping track of them and also of course one of the big challenges is what to do with the data and how how to store the data as you were talking about before um this started out uh, where a lot of it was just kept in sort of physical boxes. It was on paper or in punch cards, which, which probably translates, given the number of people and the amount of data they were collecting, to a lot of boxes. Right. Um, yes, that was a, that was a huge challenge, and it seemed very um, sort of outdated now to to have just great big boxes full of um, paper questionnaires. Um, now, of course, you know, it's, it's all computerized. And actually, as part of my book research, I went to this um, incredible um, computer archive. Um, in, in the southeast of England that stores not just data from these studies, but data from sort of social science studies from, from all around the country. Um, and obviously keep, you know, security is a massive issue and confidentiality. So the, so the identity of people who are in these studies is confidential as it should be. Um, and, and that, uh, has to be an absolutely top priority for the people running these, um, these studies today. So a lot of the data, probably as most people expect, uh, for these cohort studies is interview based. It's survey questions, uh, some medical information, but also there's, for some of these studies, there's a surprising amount of actual physical tissue or samples collected as well. Right. So, um, the, these studies have, in a really interesting way, traced um the the evolution of science itself if you if you collect information on people for 70 years and of course the questions scientists want to ask of them change as well um so at the beginning it was sort of around conditions of birth in in post-war britain um and then around um the sort of 80s 90s um just as the the genetic revolution was taking off across science then it became far more interesting and far more um feasible to to start asking really interesting biological questions about um about these people and so the study um which started in the early 1990s made a really um concerted effort to collect this incredible bank of, of biological samples um so they i mean some people find this quite grotesque but i find it quite fascinating um so they have um for example huge um collection of uh of dna from the people um blood samples and then from the children they have um a big collection of their baby teeth um nail clippings uh tufts of hair um and they also perhaps this is the most extraordinary thing or i find it extraordinary um they have uh, they collected about 9000 placentas from some of the births which are now uh stored in plastic buckets in a secure storage warehouse on the outskirts of bristol in britain um and and, and interesting 
interestingly, I mean, that they've been able to ask many questions of, of this, uh, of this data, of these samples. In some cases, it's almost waiting for the, for the science to, to catch up, actually, um, so that we can really use some of these resources to, to ask important questions. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about cohort studies and reading your book is because they go for so long and because the person who starts a study or who maybe takes it on for 10 years is not necessarily who, who does some of these sweeps in these surveys, doesn't know how the study may be useful in the future or what kinds of questions people in 30 or 40 years might be asking. Sometimes the scope of the surveys and the scope of the data gathered seems just massive. It it must be so challenging to try and figure out what to ask or what to collect. I think it is. It, it's enormously challenging. And you're right, that, that really comes across um, from the story of these studies is that the scientists who are either starting them or running them today, I mean, I suppose really starting them, if, if you want to start following thousands of children from birth, then the very difficult question you have to ask yourself is, you know, what what questions is it that scientists, you know, 10, 50, even 100 years from now will wish I had asked of these children. And that's extraordinarily difficult to know because science will have changed you know, dramatically by that time. I mean, one really nice illustration of that where, you know, scientists couldn't predict what was going to happen was right back at the start. So um, when scientists were surveying mothers in, in post-war Britain, um, nobody asked these these women, these these um, women who'd just given birth, and they were being asked, by the way, all about their pregnancy and conditions of birth and so on, but no one asked them whether they had smoked during pregnancy, which just seems an extraordinary omission today from a study of, of, of pregnant women. Um, but, but at that time, that just wasn't even being considered. And, and actually, just to, to talk for a moment about some of the specific important things which have come from these studies, so around smoking in pregnancy, that's been one of the really perhaps most important um, findings which came out of these studies. So in the first generation, women weren't asked whether they smoked during pregnancy. But in the second, um, there was almost a kind of um, afterthought, like um, at, at the time, it, there were sort of whisperings in the scientific literature of maybe there were, should be concerns about smoking in pregnancy and um, the health of, of children. And so um, the somewhat eccentric scientist who was running this uh, 1958 um, survey came running in and said, stop, stop, I, I simply must add this final question before you send the questionnaire off to the printers around smoking in pregnancy. And so the question was added and thousands of women were asked this question. And only later in the 1970s, actually, which seems very late now, um, were scientists really uh, able to pull out the data. And and from this incredible um, large survey of, of smoking habits of pregnant women, they were able to definitively show that there was a link between smoking in pregnancy and lower birth weight and therefore higher rates of infant mortality. And that um, really changed uh, uh, many doctors' minds, um, certainly in Britain and, and probably further afield, um, and you know, really led to what we take for granted now, which is um, that smoking pregnancy is not a good thing to do. This is the really interesting thing about cohort studies as well, is they can ask the types of questions and start to find um, evidence for certain things that would, in any other type of research, be almost impossible to draw any kind of, of causal and, in some case, really strong cor correlational links. So what types of questions do we find that cohort studies are particularly um, useful for trying to answer? Right. So um, that's a sort of strength and weakness of these studies is ultimately you are drawing out um, correlations across time. So um, I sometimes I call it sort of tracing lines through time. So we're able to correlate something which happened early in life with something that happened later on. Um, 
And so, for example, our um, children who are born into disadvantaged circumstances, um, how do they do at school, for example? Um, and by the way, one of the huge findings from these studies again and again and again has been that children who are born into disadvantage uh, don't tend, tend to, on average, do, um, do as well at school as more advantaged children. But that's the kind of example where often um, these type of sort of correlation or observational studies are the best evidence we have. Um, now, a, a gold standard, you know, nowadays when you want to do um, science is to do a randomized controlled trial um, where you, you know, randomly assign people um, into a particular group that receives some type of treatment um, and, and the other group um, that's comparable and all other measures uh, doesn't. But when you come to something sort of societal measures like um, poverty, for example, you can't randomly assign <laughs> children to be born into poverty or not born into poverty. You can't um, also randomly assign them to be breastfed or, or, or not. Um, so sometimes, you know, this this type of observational study is the best that, that we can do. And and the strength of those correlations becomes much stronger, particularly when we observe them, let's say, again and again and again across many different studies um, of the same type around the world, across different generations. And then you start to think, OK, this, this may be an association, but I've done everything I can to rule out all of the confounding factors that could make that untrue. Um, and it really seems to, to hold up. So let's talk about the first British cohort study, because as you said, there's kind of an interesting story about how this study came to be, because it wasn't conceived as a long-term longitudinal study to study people over decades. No, um, I, I love the origin of this study. This is probably my favourite part of the, of the whole story, actually. Um, so, so it all grew out of concerns in Britain before and um, during the Second World War that women in Britain weren't having enough babies because the, um, the fertility rate was, was going down. And um, there were a lot of serious discussions going on around how this was a problem um, because at the time the British Empire was was huge and uh, the thought was that basically if women didn't have more babies and there wouldn't be enough people around to um, sustain and rule the British Empire um, and there was you know some people were genuinely warning that um, if women didn't have more babies then we would go extinct so um so there was various discussion around this and um, eventually it was decided that the best way to find out why women perhaps weren't having as many babies was to go and talk to them. Um, and so uh, obviously this was difficult during the war, but shortly after the war, this this big survey was was planned. And the, um, the idea was to send health visitors out. So health visitors are... Um, a bit like nurses who uh, we still have them in Britain today who who go out and um and, and visit women standardly anyway after they've had a a baby. So the idea was that that health visitors would fan out across the country. Um this was in England, Scotland and Wales and visit every woman who had had a baby in this this one week in in March 1946, so just a few months after the end of the war. And um so off they went with these with these questionnaires um to ask them all around the the conditions and so on around um birth and they reached, as I think I said, about fourteen thousand um babies and collected all this information on them. Now, interestingly, once all this information had come in and been crunched by the um the tabulating machines, um the, all these concerns around fertility had had gone away because the baby boom was taking off. We, we didn't have quite such a baby boom as, as um, in the US, but there was a baby boom here. So, so the original kind of um, reason for uh, launching the study that became somewhat moot. 
um, but the results ended up being important in a very different way. So um, when when the data was processed and, and this key book was was published called uh, Maternity in Great Britain, what it really did was actually expose the enormous inequalities in, in society at the time. So it showed, for example, that um, working class women were getting much worse uh, medical care around birth. Because in those days, um, you, you got the medical care you could afford, basically. And if you couldn't afford it, then you tended to go without. Um, so uh, the, the, the babies of working class women were about 70% more likely to be born dead. Um, which was obviously tragic and, and shocking. And, um, and it also showed um, and exposed really for the first time the costs around um, having a baby. I mean, it was no surprise to me as I was writing this that it costs an absolute arm and a leg to have a baby. <laughs> um, but, um, but back then, no one had really added up the costs. Um, and there were these fantastic questions in this initial um, survey around, um, it says things like, how much did you, did you spend on smocks, uh, corsets, nightdresses, knickers and brassieres for, for the women when they were pregnant? And how much did you spend on booties and bonnets and, and shawls for your, um, for your, for your baby? And um, so they added up all the costs and showed, of course, it was incredibly expensive back then, too. And um, and again, the working class families, this was very, very difficult for them to to afford. And so um, so all this information about um, how much working class families were suffering came out and it came out at just the right time um, because it was just as the welfare state was was being put together um, in, in post-war Britain. Um, and specifically uh, when the, the National Health Service was was being uh, put together as well, the plans for it were. So this information was able to feed into the, um, the, the blueprints of the NHS. And when the NHS um, actually launched, um, the, the care around um, pregnancy and birth became free for everybody. And also around that time, more generous maternity benefits were, were introduced. So, so um, pregnant women were getting a little bit more money. Um, and, and so it really, um, in my mind, helped establish what we take for granted uh, today, which is that all women um, deserve uh, support from the state during, during pregnancy and deserve good, good treatment, which I think is really important. Um, so in some ways, you know, the, the maternity or parental benefits um, that, that we get today are partly thanks to that rather odd survey that was done back in 1946. So when did this one survey become this more longitudinal uh, study that it has become today? So um, at the time, uh, the whole thing was was really quite small scale, and it was largely being run by one doctor called James Douglas, who really passionately um, believed in it. And um, it was really just um, probably about two years after the initial survey and after this first book had been written about maternity in Great Britain that, that he and a um, few others who had been involved in this started to think, well, actually, we've captured this incredible slice of information about um, these, these babies. And wouldn't it be an incredible thing to now start following them through their lives? And I think there were two reasons for that thought. One was they just actually shown it was possible to do that. I mean, it was possible to go out and go and survey um, thousands and thousands of people around Britain and collect that information and process it. Um, but also, I think they did realize that these these children were born at really quite a, a special, um, almost unique time. Um, as I said, just after the war had ended um, and after the welfare state was being introduced, which was really, you know, there to try and eliminate some of the inequalities in the country that had been around before that time. So they were they were being born um, just as the NHS was being introduced, um, just as there were changes taking place in the education system. So I think there was a real thought that 
well, we've seen these early inequalities in, in the way that these children are born. I wonder if those are going to even out as these as these children grow up. Um, so that's how they then decided to start going back and, and surveying these these uh, parents and, and then eventually, of course, the children themselves um, throughout their lives. So how many of the original um, children were actually drawn into the longer study? Because the original survey uh, was something like 17,000 kids or 17,000 babies? It was about 14,000 in the first um, in that first survey of uh, babies born in that one week. And then, as I said, because of just some of the, the practical difficulties of collecting information and following that many people at, at that time, um, the it, it was whittled down to around 5,000. And the idea was that they would try and um, fairly represent the different social classes um, within that 5,000. So, so that was the original one. And then as they've gone on, um, they've, they've had, had greater um, numbers in these later cohort studies, which have started up looking at the, at the later generations. Out of curiosity, how many of that 5,000 that they followed up, in, followed up with in the second sweep, have they continued to follow up with throughout their lives in that, from that original so, so first study? All of that, um, sorry, I spoke over you. That's <laughs> no problem. That five, all of that 5,000 have been followed through their lives. Now, um, I think today around 3,000 or so are still actively taking part um, in the study. So people, um, some people drop out, some people move away, uh, some people die, of course, particularly now because um, the, these people are now 71. Um, but it, it has a remarkably high retention rate, actually. So this eternal challenge with, some, with these ongoing lifelong studies is just to keep people involved, right? If people drop out, your study collapses. So um, they're always trying to keep people engaged and make sure that, that it's easy to, to come back and uh, collect more information. So this particular, it's very interesting, actually, the, the, the people who were in that very first study, um, this is partly the reason I wrote the book in the first place, is I had a chance to meet some of them, um, because when they turned 65, which is quite a sort of milestone in, in milestone for the study to have gone 65 years, and um, a milestone for the people in it, because that's also um, the official retirement age for many people in Britain, and, um, and the scientists threw them a birthday party, or well, they actually had, a, um, I think it was two birthday parties, um, and I went to the one in London, and it was just a really kind of incredible um, moment to be in a room with all these people uh, who all you know, share a birthday week, and they're so loyal to the study. That's what's so amazing. Um, you know, they really care about it, and they they also have this sort of um, sense. I think that they're. I mean, somebody actually said this to me that you know, my mother signed me up for the study, and and it's my duty to see it through to the last. <laughs> um, so that 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 sense of real commitment to this this study, and they also feel really special um, for for being part of it. So, um, you know, that really explains in some ways why so many of them have, have stayed involved over the years. It's got a much higher um, rate of involvement than, than other um, studies of its type. I find that really surprising about some of these studies that something that these people, by definition, didn't sign themselves up for, right? They didn't opt into this. They are so loyal and so willing to not just continue to be in the study, but some of the things they're asked to do and the surveys they're asked to fill out and the the medical examinations they're asked to participate in. These are not small things that you can that take 10 minutes on a Sunday afternoon. Some of the, the work they've done to keep the study going is significant. Yes, I mean, uh, the scientists who run them are always striking this balance between how much information they really want to know and how much intrusion there is on people's lives, because they have to be extremely, obviously, respectful of people's time. And it, no, these people don't get paid anything to be in these studies. Um, you know, it's all voluntary. 
Um, and some people, I mean, yes, and, and so today, sometimes um, there have been quite extensive clinical investigations where, for example, the people in the 1946 cohort have been asked to come in for a full day of, of medical tests. Um, but, I mean, a lot of them absolutely love it <laughs> because <laughs> they get, um, I mean, some of them called it their um, their MOT, which is, um, and the MOT is, is the test you put your, your car through to make sure it's fit to run on, on the road. But um, so it was kind of their their test to see whether they were, you know, fit and healthy. Um, so they did get some quite useful information from that to find out something about their own health. Um, and I think, as I said, you know, a lot of them just feel very special for for um, being able to be part of this incredible study. Now, the the attitude towards the studies, interestingly, um, has changed to, to some extent over the years. And, um, you know, I, I think today um, you can ask whether there is as much um, commitment, you know, or would there be as much commitment um, from from parents and young people to be involved in, in such a study. And, and this all came to, to, to the fore, actually, um, because just as I was writing um, the book, there, there were plans for um, the, the sixth cohort study in the series. So there was going to be, and this was going to be the biggest yet. So there were plans and early money invested um, in a very, very major um, birth cohort study, which was going to track about 80,000 children born in, in Britain, um, you know, born into the modern generation. Of course, there's so many questions we, we want to know about, about that, about modern life. Um, and the study was actually launched, um, and uh, some mothers and, um, well, parents, parents and babies were involved in it. But only uh, after just a few months, this was in 2015, after just a few months, it was cancelled. Um, and the scientists who had already sunk, you know, five years of their lives into getting this, this thing going were, were really devastated by this. And, and there were kind of two questions around why that happened, which kind of speaks to, to your question around attitudes of involvement. So one was it, it was proving difficult um, to get families to, to take part and enroll. Um, and, you know, some of that was because they were specifically going after quite disadvantaged communities. Um, they really wanted a high representation of that in the study. And that can be particularly challenging to um, to encourage those communities to, to become involved in something like this. Some of it is just around our lives today. You know, people are people are busy and they have to take, um, you know, go back to the hospital and spend another three hours uh, voluntarily giving information and samples um, to to a study which they they don't really necessarily know that much about. Um, and there are very very valid questions also, of course, about privacy today and about data. You know, what's going to happen to this data? I think people are way more concerned about that today. Uh, certainly than they were in 1946 when, you know, consent basically involved um, women asking the health visitor into their (laughs) their houses. Um, But then there were also concerns from the scientists that actually the funders themselves, um, the organizations uh, funding this study, um, and the government had kind of lost interest in it and and lost uh, support. So it was it was a very poignant um, end to the story, actually, because at least at this time, it suggests that this incredible series of of lifelong um, cohort studies has, has come to an end because we couldn't quite get it together to, to launch the next one. You mentioned um, funding and throughout the book, it's a recurring theme that getting these cohort studies continual funding has been a massive challenge from the beginning. And quite often, these studies are just teetering on the brink of being cancelled or being forgotten or being kind of set aside because getting the money to conduct 
another survey or another sweep is is sometimes very difficult to to find. Yes, it is eternally challenging. Um, it's just very very difficult. I mean, just the story of this book is just finding money to keep these things going. Um, it's very challenging to get them going because um, they're very big and they're very expensive. It really costs a lot of money and a lot of effort to track thousands of people um, through their lives. And um, there's also just a sort of inherent problem in the way that, that science funding tends to be given out, which is it tends to be given out in kind of three or five year blocks. Um, but unfortunately, these studies, you know, run for a lifetime. And so we have this bizarre situation even now where um, these incredibly valuable studies, which have been running for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, don't actually know whether they're going to be able to go on beyond the next um, grant that they've got, which is probably three or five years away. So, so the people who run them are just in this sort of eternal hamster wheel of writing for funding and trying to get the next, you know, secure the next five years, um, which is, has been really difficult. And um, and certainly throughout the book, I mean, you know, and the story of these studies, there were times when um, one or other of them was just a sort of a, a step away from from collapse, usually due to to financial problems. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't have a solution to that. Um, I mean, the other, another challenge, of course, is also just around kind of political support. So, so also, what you see throughout the story of these studies is sort of political support for them sort of comes and and goes. Um, because sometimes these studies give messages we don't want to hear, actually, around, as I said, um, around, you know, disadvantage. I mean, they show um, that many children are being born into poverty and that those children don't tend to follow particularly successful lives. And so if you're a government deciding where you want to put millions of pounds in, in scientific funding, do you want to invest in a study which is going to show um, how, you know, poorly a significant proportion of society does? That's kind of <laughs> unpalatable. So, so that's that's another challenge which um, which is faced by the scientists running these things. And also, of course, when we talk about government and politicians, politicians have a tendency not to think about decades long value from studies like these because they may only be in office for eight years. That's exactly right. Yes, always. Um, so, you know, I think that was another challenge around um, the, the start of this. This new big uh, cohort study I had talked around um, around in 2015 is that ultimately the um, the results from that study were potentially going to come. You know, I mean, the, fir- the first major results would be 10 years from now, and the really significant ones were going to be 50 years. So the politicians who actually paid for and started it weren't going to re- reap any of the rewards. So when we look back at the first cohort study, what kind of information have we been able to glean from it? What what were some of the results or some of the research that was done on this massive body of, of data that came from the first cohort study? So I, I mentioned one significant one that I always like to draw out, which is around um, the conditions around birth and really being able to sort of feed into the foundations of, of the NHS, which I think is, is really important. Um, I think a second one, which was, was very important, was that it was able to also um, shape the British education system. And um, the way that it did that was it, it followed the children as they went into school and started um, carrying out separate tests of, of children's intelligence. And, and this eventually proved to be um, very valuable because it was able to um, look at the introduction of the 11 plus exam. So, so I talked about the, um, the welfare state um, reforms in, in Britain with the, the start of the NHS. But another really significant change um, in the 1944 Education Act was the introduction of grammar schools. 
Um, and the idea of, of these schools was that um, all children would uh, sit this exam at around 11, that's what's called to be 11 plus, and, um, and this would identify the children who were particularly bright and had potential, and they would be channeled into these elite grammar schools. Um, and the idea was that, that actually this would remove inequalities in the education system because it didn't matter what social background you came from. If you passed the, the exam, you could get to the best schools and, you know, that would propel you through life. Now, what um, what this uh, cohort study was able to show was that actually the 11 plus um, wasn't really working as it should. Um, and it showed that uh, the, the very bright uh, working class children were not passing the 11 plus exam um, in the same uh, numbers as equally bright uh, middle and upper class children. And um, that might kind of sound un- unsurprising today, but but it was actually, you know, it really did kind of undermine the whole um, rationale behind this this selective education system. And when those results emerged um, in the 1960s, um, they fed into other evidence, which eventually led to a, a really profound change in the education system here in which selective schools were kind of moved to, to the side. Um, and there was a, a big sweep to introduce comprehensive schooling, um, whereby all children go to the same types of, of comprehensive schools. Now, today we have this sort of slightly patchwork um, system where some some regions have maintained some grammar schools, uh, but comprehensives are, are in the majority. But it's just so interesting because one of the things you see through the book is is kind of... <laughs> questions repeating themselves. It, um, I think I said in the book that sometimes it feels like these same old questions are going round and round like a washing machine. Hmm. But there's this big debate going on in Britain at the moment around grammar schools uh, because Theresa May has, has made it a, a point of saying her government wants to um, to introduce more grammar schools, um, which has called, caused quite a fuss because people either seem to love them or hate them. But it's just so interesting if you actually look back in the 1960s, the evidence was showing that um, grammar schooling generally um, did not help the disadvantaged children as much as the advantaged ones. And um, and that's been found really again and again, actually, in many studies ever since. And that's exactly what people who were opposed to the latest um, uh, political um, expansion of grammar schooling uh, point to as saying that, you know, it, it would only perpetuate some of the divides between the rich and poor. So this first cohort was definitely not the only one to look at education and outcomes in particular as it pertains to social class. And there was a a really interesting and quite famous and well-known graph, the Feinstein graph, that um, was kind of seized to talk about this topic. Right. So this, yes, exactly. Um, This was done many years later on uh, data from one of the, the later cohorts. And um, in a way, the findings weren't new um, because all of these studies have shown that, um, as, as I intimated, that children who are born into disadvantaged backgrounds um, tend to, on average, um, you know, suffer more on, on almost every score. And, and schooling is one of those. Um, so, but this particular study, which which was relatively small, looked at children quite um, early in their lives and then uh, was able to sort of plot um, their scores on educational tests. And what what it appeared to show um, when when he divided up the um, the groups was that um, if, if he divided them up by how well they were scoring on very early tests of um, of ability. 
um, like really young in their lives, before they'd started school and then how they, well they did through their lives, it suggested that the um, the brightest um, poor children were overtaken on educational tests by the um, most stupid, if I can say that, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the ones who were scoring the lowest um, rich children. And, and this was sort of shown on, on this graph where you actually saw these two lines crossing when he plotted it out. And it really seemed to sort of represent everything that people um you know hated about um social divides in britain that that effectively um it's stupid rich children could overtake the the very very bright poor children i mean that's a very very crude way of, of expressing it but that's how it was interpreted um uh, by you know by by people when when this graph was was released so it caused quite a controversy really now, it caused uh, a controversy, obviously, but there were also some scientists who took some issue with the graph as well as obviously people in political uh, stations and the public. Yes, I mean, any anything which is controversial in science <laughs> tends to get picked up and, and taken apart by other scientists. Um, so you can you can debate around um, the specifics of this graph and how he had done this specific analysis. And that was done by by other um educational scientists and and the question was you know can you really do the lines necessarily cross but in in some ways I think that's a little bit of a detail because what they weren't arguing about was what I was saying earlier which is that in general um, you know the children who are born into poverty or into extreme disadvantage do tend to on average struggle more on on educational tests and at school they weren't really disputing that or that these children need more help so I think there was a huge area of common ground um, you know, the, the disputes were potentially around the details. So the first cohort study as well, because it is the longest running one, is the one that's kind of the first to start really digging into um, evidence and uh, some of the science and some of the information we can gather about how how we start out in life can impact how we leave life. Yes, definitely. So um there's there's lots of evidence now and this this study was kind of at the forefront of this of, of looking at how our um our biological development in in the womb and, and during the early years can have an impact on our um risks of chronic diseases many many decades down the line and um you know it used to be thought for example when all of the links around um smoking and lung cancer were emerging that really our risks of things like you know heart disease and and cancer and diabetes and so on were all all emerged around our behaviors as adults so whatever we were you know eating or smoking or doing um but but there's been a a growing um movement if you can call it that or um sort of understanding that actually many of those risks um are actually being influenced from from very early in life and um and so for example there was in in this in, in one of these cohorts in that first one as you said um, they were able to pull out some of the very first links between birth weight and risk of, of high blood pressure decades down the line, suggesting that there was a link between lower birth rate and and um, and higher blood pressure. And, and now there's quite well-established links between birth weights and um, risks of, of chronic disease. Sometimes they don't always, it's not like always low birth weights associated with high risks. I think high birth weight is associated with high risks of breast cancer, for example. So it's a bit of a tangle of, um, of associations. Um, but nevertheless, this, this idea, uh, which some called, called um, fetal programming, um, that 
you know, this, this sort of early growth and development can, can actually be having impacts on our health decades down the line is, is actually astonishing when you think about it. And these studies have been very important and other cohort studies as well be very important in establishing those links. A lot of these sort of public health questions uh, are really difficult to answer or even to try to answer in any other types of studies because it's so difficult to tease out what kinds of things can impact diabetes, what kinds of things can impact certain cancers. Um, obesity, I know, is another big thing that people are looking to cohort studies to try and better understand uh, what what is seen as a, as a growing problem with, with weight gain. Right. And I think um, one really just interesting and also slightly intuitive concept which has emerged from, from these lifelong studies is something called life course epidemiology. And that's really um, this idea that our risks of chronic diseases are shaped by, by everything we encounter through our life courses. And that includes biological influences, so our genes, our, our growth in the womb, our, our childhood, but also all the social influences too. Those things like our social class at birth, our, our parents, our homes, our jobs, our education, our, our, um, our social status as adults. So all of these things together um, add up to give us the risks that we have today of, of diseases. And it, it kind of sounds really obvious to, to state that. Um, but actually, there have been um, lots of sort of disputes about, um, you know, what's most important when it comes to shaping our, our risks of these diseases. And I think that these studies have shown that, unfortunately, there's not going to be any simple answers, you know, that the challenge is, is working out from that very complex web of, of factors, which ones are, are important and which ones, of course, we can actually change. Um so, so that's been, that's been a really important, um, finding. And I mean, just to talk about obesity, um, it has been, you know, it's just, just so interesting where you can compare generations to, to see these, um, these huge societal changes such as obesity. So, for example, um, at the start in this generation born in 1946, I mean, there just wasn't any childhood obesity. Um, because these children were growing up on rationed food, um, and you know it just it just wasn't a phenomenon. And then also the generation born in 1958 and 1970, there was hardly any childhood obesity either. And um, actually, in studies which have been done quite recently, which have been able to compare all of the cohorts, they found this really interesting thing where if they line them all up um, and look at their their body weight. Um, it, it's as if all of the different generations um, started to to gain weight, actually. Um, obesity became more of a phenomenon around the same time, and that was in the 1980s. Um, and then the, the generations born after that in the 1990s and 2000s, then childhood obesity has, as we know, become a much, much bigger problem. And so it suggests that something really kind of profoundly important was happening in the 1980s, certainly in, in British society. And that was potentially that people were becoming more affluent, um, it was more affordable to eat out, jobs were becoming more sedentary, um, these kind of societal changes can be can be seen on the on the body weight um graphs of these of these studies. There's also, of course, uh moving forward through time, um, as we develop genetic research capabilities, there's a lot of medical data, and in particular, this is where some of these physical samples start to become more and more valuable. Right. So um I mentioned that study that the generation that started in, uh, in the early 1990s, which should really put a focus on collecting um, genetic samples from the very beginning. And I think almost all of the cohorts now have collected um, genetic information are, and are increasingly using it. Because, of course, what you can do if you've got this massive collection of lifelong data is start to sort of try and draw out links now between the genetic data and the um, 
all of the, you know, the lifestyle data that you've collected over those years. And so these studies were really at the forefront when, when in the um, 2000s, really, scientists were starting to, to draw links between specific genes associated with specific risks of disease. I mean, again, you know, there's no, you know, unfortunately, there's no simple message um, or, or simple answers here. You know, we find uh, many, many uh, genes involved in influencing um, these these risks of disease. Um, so potentially what's really going to matter as we, as we go forward is, um, you know, finding the particular combination of, for example, um, you know, growth in the womb plus particular susceptibility genes plus particular lifestyle factors through our lives, which eventually add up to, to give us um, high or low risks of diseases. So, you know, as so often in, uh, in science, things become more complicated um, the deeper we get into it. I seem to remember as well in the book, you mentioned at some point that there is an interest in recruiting children of previous cohort members into new cohorts to try and uh, track some of the impacts down through generations. Is that correct? That's right. So, um, again, this study in the 1990s has really tried to do that um, to sort of expand um, across the generations. So they've They've not only collected lots of um, information and samples from the children themselves, they've collected it from the, um, from the parents, and now they're even going back to some of the grandparents. And now, uh, because the children who were born in the 1990s are now in their 20s, of course, they're having children, and so they are recruiting those um, children as well, if, if they can, of course, you know, find them and, and encourage them to, to sign up. And that does become really powerful when you've got three or four generations and you can really start to tease out some of those complicated links I was talking about um, around, you know, genes and how they influence susceptibility to, um, to particular conditions. Helen, thank you so much. Really fascinating topic and a, a really great book. I, I definitely enjoyed it. And some of the, the, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but some of the people who have led these studies over the years have just been fascinating characters as well. Really larger than life characters. Yes, that would be a whole other conversation. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about Helen Pearson, her work or her book, The Life Project, The Extraordinary Story of 70,000 Ordinary Lives. As always, you can find links to all of this information in the show notes for this episode, which are located on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll speak with Dr. Parminder Reyna about the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging and what it's like to be at the beginning of a cohort study that could run for decades. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Praminder Reyna, a professor in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evaluation, and Impact at McMaster University. He's also the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Geroscience, the inaugural Scientific Director of the McMaster Institute for Research on Aging and Labarge Center for Mobility and Aging, and is the Principal Investigator of the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Praminder, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much, Rochelle. So, I think the best place to start is probably what is the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging? 
Um, Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging is a, a it's a study and a platform, and I'll I'll explain that in a minute what I mean by that. And that is that we have actually assembled a cohort of around fifty one thousand Canadians between the ages of forty five and eighty five at the outset, and we are going to follow these individuals for the next. 20 years at least and and we we collect data on social issues psychological health um, biological economics and environmental issues so idea behind this whole research in a platform is that what we want to examine how people why some people age in healthy fashion and others don't and aging is as much a biological issue as it is a social, economic, or psychological issue. So we, that the premise behind this whole longitudinal uh, platform and study was to understand how these different factors actually impact the trajectory uh, of uh, aging process. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a study because you have to have research questions that drive the development of the content of the study. But we have also developed it as a platform for all researchers in Canada and around the globe. So what that means is that any researchers, whether he or she is involved in the, in the CLSA from the outside or not, can apply and access these data to answer any specific research questions that they want to answer. So it is a resource for science in this country and internationally. So there's both some specific questions that you're trying to answer and building into the study, but you're also looking at it as kind of an exploratory uh, experiment as well. Well, well, I would not say it's exploratory in the sense that uh, there's only so many questions that you can ask at the outset. Part of the longitudinal study is that many new questions will emerge as the data are generated over the next 20 years. So we wanted to build a platform that was flexible enough to answer specific hypo- hypotheses that we haven't thought about yet. And But at the same time, we wanted to have certain uh, some type of research questions as part of this platform that we can answer over the next 5, 10, or 20 years as well, the things that we already know and we want to get answers to those things. And that's why, uh, let's say, we are interested in uh, one of the research questions is that there is a cognitive decline that happens as people age. and not, But not everybody who has a decline goes on to develop dementia. So the question there is why some people uh, who have a cognitive decline do not go on to develop a dementia or any type of a, a cognitive impairment, but others do. What differentiates those two populations and what are the triggers and what risk factors are associated with that uh, that pattern? So that would be one of the uh, questions. Another question which we are very interested from a biological point of view, uh, that there is probably an internal biological clock that is associated with, with age, which, is mu- which describes the aging process much better than a chronological age can. And one of those uh, uh, phenomena that has emerged over the last few years is called epigenetic clock. And so the question is, is epigenetic clock a better predictor of the aging process than the chronological age that we all use as a as a marker of aging process? So those are the types of questions that we identify up front. And but there are many other questions uh, that are going to be emerging as the more and more data are being collected. First. And and that means that uh, in the future, we might add new uh, data elements based on what the state of the science at that point in time is. So it's not a closed shop. It sort of is 
dynamic and evolutionary. It has a core uh, data uh, element, but it also has the flexibility to add uh, new information that might be uh, needed for specific hypotheses that we haven't even thought about yet. One of the fascinating things about these types of studies is just the duration of them and how at the beginning you're trying to, I would expect you're trying to ask the right kinds of questions that could be useful 15, 20 years down the road for things that haven't even emerged yet. Because when you look at a lot of longitudinal studies, quite often they end up being helpful for things in a way that that would be very hard to predict at the beginning. That's the strength of the longitudinal studies. Yes, you can design particular study with some uh, questions in mind up front. But if you look at the uh, longitudinal studies that have been done around the globe, especially a lot of them have happened in UK, that the value those longitudinal studies have added to the scientific knowledge is not from the original research questions that they posed. It is the, the new questions that emerged later in life. For example, 1948 birth cohort that was implemented in uh, UK 1948. It was designed to understand what are the early uh, childhood factors that uh, affect the development of the child and, and child health in many, many ways. But those data, those people are there, data are being collected. Now we understand more from those data how early childhood exposures actually also have impact on midlife because many of those are in their late 50s so we are trying to, we are beginning to understand because of those data, how early childhood factors or early experiences, whether they be uh, socioeconomic, biological, or other social type of factors actually have impact uh, uh, later in life. And, and that's what longitudinal studies do very well, that they actually help you understand the trajectories of a particular population or a particular age group uh, that you're interested in. It must be such a challenge to try and construct the questions and to to specify the types of data that you want to collect at the beginning, not knowing what the future looks like. Uh, yes and no. I think that, that what most longitudinal studies, at least in our Canadian longitudinal study on aging, uh, we, we actually designed the cohort from the perspective that there are questions that we want to know now or the next five or ten years that we would like to have some answers to those. But we also know the longitudinal studies from a, a state of science point of view, uh, probably if we just kept the old, the initial information and we just relied on that information alone, uh, cohorts can get outdated. And so in the design of our study, let's say, we actually uh, designed it in a way that there are core questions that will go every year. We will follow those questions for this population. But we add new information as the uh, science emerges uh, in order to keep the cohort relevant to the times and be able to answer some of the more recent uh uh, questions that might be of relevance uh, to the to the knowledge base right now. So I think you said there were 50,000 people uh, built into the cohort. What kind of age groups are we looking at here for this study? Uh, as I said, at the baseline, we started with between the ages of 45 and 85. So this basically is a uh, random sample of the Canadian population in that in those age groups. So 
our goal from uh, from our construction of this cohort was that we wanted to capture uh, baby boomers, the last of the baby boomers and today's older population. So we wanted to understand because they're in Canada from a Canadian perspective, there's very little data, longitudinal data on the baby boomers, how they will age, what are their trajectories going to be, because they are a very different cohort. They are they are highly educated. They are uh, in many of them in white collar jobs. They their lifestyles are different. So that was the one interest we had. So that's why we age 45 at the time when we started was capturing the last of the baby boomers. And then we are also interested in uh, in the people living in the community who are older, and we wanted to understand. So it's it's in other ways you can say is this is a cohort that was assembled to understand not only today's seniors but seniors of tomorrow. And, and that's what led to our picking between the ages of 45 and 85. So the doing a longitudinal study um, in Canada presents potentially, I would expect, a slightly different challenge than doing a longitudinal study in somewhere like the United Kingdom, where the United Kingdom is quite small and all the people are, are living in the same small area, whereas Canada is quite a large country and we're a bit more spread out. So does that present a challenge to your study to try and get a representative sample from across the country? Um, I, I think there's a different answer to your question. I don't think it is difficult to get a representative sample, uh, but where it becomes challenging is the logistics of doing more comprehensive study, and, and I will explain what I mean by that. In our study of 50,000, we have actually created two cohorts within uh, the 50,000. One is called, one is a cohort of 20,000 people, another is a cohort of 30,000 people. So, uh, in fact, the 30,000 is what we call a very comprehensive, where we go to the homes of the people, we collect questionnaire data, we bring them to a, a dedicated data collection site where we do lots of physical assessments. We do retinal imaging, we do imaging of their carotid arteries, we do scans of their body and body composition, we do blood pressure, respiratory function, ECGs. Um, uh, we draw blood and collect urine samples, and and we do performance testing. And to do that kind of comprehensive data collection, uh, that becomes a challenge in Canada because going to remote areas and having facilities where you can do this becomes a challenge. For example, even in bigger centers that where we are right now, we had to develop and build our own facilities where people could come. But going to uh, Nunavut or some other remote area was not possible. So we said the 30,000, which is focused on comprehensive aspects of the study, we are going to do them in small cities, mid-sized cities, and large cities where the academic centers are, facilities are available, and it's easy for people to uh, come to a data collection site, and it's easy for us to go to the homes of the people. So that is that actually gives us a bit of a representativeness of that, that area, the area we define, which was going to be part of that comprehensive cohort. But we also wanted to capture a really good picture of rest of Canada, and especially the rural Canada. And we said, okay, we will do a only questionnaire-based uh, study on the remaining 20,000, but we want to make sure that 20,000 is uh, represents the uh, rest of uh, Canada. So we basically use the sampling uh, strategies of Statistics Canada, so you can actually come up with the population-based estimates. So that's ideally we would have liked to do more comprehensive on all 50, 60,000 people or even a bigger cohort. 
but the distances make it very difficult from a logistic, operational, and a cost point of view. And that's the compromise we came up uh, with in relation to 30,000 and 20,000 cohorts. Things people who live in smaller land bases don't have to think about. (laughs) Right, right, right. And and even here, even in a big city, uh, you have to define boundaries from where people can travel. Like, let's say Hamilton is, Hamilton, Ontario is one of the data collection sites. And, uh, and we have a 35 to 55 kilometer radius from where people travel and come to visit our data collection site. But we did pilot work and we found that people beyond that distance wouldn't travel as much. But doing this kind of in-depth and taking those equipment to the homes of the people uh, is not feasible. You could use small hospitals and ask people to come there to collect data, but then the quality of data is not good because every site has its own machine, different machine, different standing, uh, standard operating procedure, so quality is compromised. So we wanted to make sure the quality of data uh, is good, and and we wanted to create infrastructure that is exactly the same across the country, and that limits where you can put it. Well, thank you so much. It's a really interesting project, and I look forward to uh, following the news as it comes out. Great. Thank you very much for your interest. And if you want to learn more about Parminder Reina or the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, we will have links uh, up on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.